All right, if you can find your way to a seat, it is 7.45, and we have uh, got a lot of stuff going on tonight, so we are going to jump back into Ephesians, and just by way of reminder, we're talking about this reality that um, we are in a battle, and it is a battle that we cannot win um, in and of ourselves, but it is also a battle that's, um, that God will not lose. And so depending upon how we want to engage in the battle, it's going to kind of determine that that outcome for us. There's a, a theologian, his name is Nathaniel Jolly, who's done a lot of uh, work on Ephesus. And um, I saw this about a month or so ago and just kind of marked it. I want to read this to you. He describes um, the realities of what was going on in Ephesus, and it helped frame this discussion, at least for me. And um, so here's what he said. I'll read it to you. He said, uh, young men and children were castrated to serve Artemis. Remember, I, saw, I showed you the temple of Artemis there on uh, day number one. Thousands of temple prostitutes, orgies, festival dancers, um, heralds, various other sexual perversions. Heraclitus, who was an Ephesian noble and a philosopher uh, in their world, a pagan philosopher, albeit, um, at one stage refused to suggest laws in Ephesus because the governance of the city was so bad, he said he felt no need. He said of his own city, quote, they would do well to hang themselves, every grown man of them, and leave the city to the beardless lads. Their morals are lower than animals. That was one of their own philosophers' descriptions of the city. And he goes on to say this, and yet Paul planted a church here. Paul calls the Christians in this church to walk worthy of the calling, chapter 4, verse 1, to keep the unity of the faith, chapter 4, verse Three, and the expectation is that both the church grows and believers mature in such a place, not to flee from the fight, but to run to the fight. And so I just think in, uh, as we think about our culture and our world and our day, um, it is very similar. And God is calling us to run to the fight, not to flee from it, to put on this armor, the protections and privileges of having a relationship with God, that daily, that you and I, um, that we would armor up, that we would follow uh, after this, uh, this same pattern, because um, at times we'll find ourselves in situations and circumstances and we'll start to fight the wrong things, because the things that we think are our battles and the things that are really our battles are not necessarily always the same things. We bring ourselves under that shmiha authority of Jesus, we armor up, and then we stand in the readiness to fight whatever it is uh, that comes our way. Uh, I was thinking about um, our discussion this morning, if you were there for uh, the Q&A and something that maybe we failed to mention. We talked a lot about uh, raising kids and raising teenagers, and we actually mentioned it over here at our table. You know, um, sometimes when you're dealing with teenagers, uh, they, they kind of slot into their own way. They, think, they think they've got it figured out, right? They want to do things their way. And so my son, uh, it's very difficult to wake up in the mornings. Anybody got teenagers that are difficult? Yeah, 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 wake, tough to wake up in the mornings. And um, also, you know, children have technology, right? So you wonder what it is that they're looking at. Like, what are they, what are they watching? What are they seeing? What are they? So my wife solved that problem very effectively, I thought, um, because you would yell downstairs at my son. She would in the morning to try and get him up to go to school. Wouldn't get up the first time, wouldn't get up the second time. So she would just go downstairs and sit down beside his bed and pick his phone up and say, so what were we scrolling on last night? And she would just look through everything he was looking through on his phone. And amazing, he pops right up, right? 
um, out, of, out of bed. And so there are battles that we're going to fight. We're going to fight through battles with, with our kids, right, at times. And we're going we're gonna to go to war for them, with them, even when, even when maybe they don't necessarily want it. They don't necessarily, um, they wouldn't choose that from us to be on their team. And we're going to find ways uh, to do that. We find ourselves in those situations. <clears throat> I was thinking about 2 Peter 1.3. It says this. You have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. And I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times that I find that I think I need more faith. I think I need more Holy Spirit. I think I need more knowledge. I need more education. And that verse reminds me that I've got everything I need. I've got all the tools I need. I've got everything that I just have to appropriate it, right? I have to put it on. I have to use the things that God has given me. And that's what this armor describes to us, which kind of brings us to the piece of the armor that we'll talk about tonight, which is the shield of faith. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16 uh, says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts. Maybe your translation says fiery arrows. Um, of, uh, of the evil one. Um, now, in, uh, for soldiers in fighting, there was an arm-sized shield, right? Uh, you think, think like uh, Captain America-sized shield. That soldier said, but that's not this shield. This is a completely different kind of shield. Um, this was like a, the size of a door frame, about two and a half feet wide, about five feet or so tall, a wooden frame that was wrapped in animal skins that were then soaked in water. This uh, is the one piece of armor out of all the ones that we've talked about so far, the ones we'll talk about tomorrow morning. This is the only piece that you did not always have with you, right? You've always got your shoes. You've always got your helmet. You've always got your breastplate, uh, the belt, all those things. You, your sword, you're always going to have those things with you. But this shield was for a specific moment. This shield was for when you besieged a city. So it didn't matter. Like you've got 10,000 soldiers and um, a formidable city, a walled city's got only got 1,000. It doesn't matter. They've got the high ground, right? And if you're going to take that city out, you've got to attack somehow the base of the walls. And inevitably, when you do that, the fact that the enemy's got the, the high ground, what are they going to do? <clears throat> going to shoot arrows. And not just any kind of arrows, but they're going to light those bad boys on fire, right? Because not only are those arrows meant to harm, they are also meant to alarm. These fiery arrows, these flaming darts that come from the enemy um, in real world uh, battle and in spiritual battle are designed to harm and to alarm. Certainly to wound, absolutely but they're also designed to create panic, to get you and me to tuck tail, turn, and run, and go the other way, to create confusion um, in our lives. So what are these moments? In our, there's a variety of things they can be in our lives. These are the moments where you hear the word um, malignant. These are the times maybe you hear the words, I don't love you anymore. These are the moments where you see the uh, sheriff's deputies driving up the driveway. Um, these are those fiery air, those fiery dart kinds of moments for which 
you've got to hold up a shield, a shield that's going to extinguish those fiery darts in situations and circumstances. You and I, um, we have to learn, right? We have to learn how to be prepared um, for those moments. So Paul says, take up, take up the shield uh, of faith. So what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is um, I want to look at three different places in Scripture that refer to fire and these fiery darts, these fiery moments um, in our lives. So I'll say three things to you um, about fire. The first one comes in First uh, Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. It says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though a strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers in Christ's suffering. The first thing is that fire is inevitable. Peter says to us, don't think it's strange when these difficult moments come. Don't think it's strange when you hear that diagnosis from the doctor. Don't think it's strange when these, because what you're doing is you are a partaker. You're a sharer in the sufferings of Christ. What do you think he means by that? I think that he's saying to us, look at what God did through the suffering of Jesus in terms of reaching the world and making a difference in the lives of billions of people. And you are a sharer in the sufferings of Christ, if you can understand and see that there's going to be a way that God is going to use these fiery trials, these flaming darts that come into, that come into your life and my life. How does God use that, that fire? How does he do that? Revelation uh, chapter 3 verse 18 uh, says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So when gold is mined, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of gold and ore. And for the gold to be useful, it has to be fired, right? It's, it's got to be put into just the right amount of fire. You put it into just the right amount of fire, and what happens is the dross or the extra material melts away, and what's left, the gold that's left, is more beautiful and more useful than it was in its previous context. And in the same way, you and I need just enough suffering in our lives, just enough that the stuff that doesn't need to be there gets burned away, but enough so that we become more beautiful and more useful. Too much fire and just like with gold, everything's pulverized, it's burned up. Not enough fire, and it's useless. It's not good for anything. It's the very same way for us. I think about, um, think about the Old Testament character Job, right? Um, as the tragedy of losing his children, he has um, dissonance, right? Struggle in his relationship uh, with his wife. Um, he's got these friends that he thinks are well, friends, <laughs> they're, right, they're criticizing him all along the way. He has no community. He's got all these fires all along the way. But the source, the beginning of that is this argument between God and Satan, between God and his enemy, between God and the leader of the principalities and powers of this present darkness that we've been talking about this week. And here's the basis of the discussion. 
Satan says to God, what, does Job, does he not serve you for any, any reason? What's his point? The reason Job ser- serves you is because you've blessed him. That's the reason he serves you. And his accusation is, okay, God, Job, Job's allegiance to you is tied to the blessings that come from you. That's the difference between a servant and a hireling, right? A hireling, right? A hireling um, loves things and uses God to get things. A servant loves God and uses the things to do whatever he can to make a difference in loving God through the things, the blessings that God provides. So Satan accuses Job. He said, the only reason he serves you is because, because, of, because of the stuff. And God says, have you ever considered my servant Job? There is none like him. Imagine, there is none like him. I can't see your name. What's your name? Andrew. Imagine God saying, there is none. There is none like Andrew. How about you? What's your name? Cliff. There is none like Cliff. What's your name? Susan. None like Susan. There's none I thought at moments along the way in my lifetime, I've imagined that kind of a conversation. I think, I just like for God to leave me out of the conversation, right? I don't, I don't know that I necessarily want to be in that conversation, but the thought that that would be on the mind and the heart of God. So how do you know? How do we answer this discussion? The only way to know was that the blessings had to be taken away. That was the only way to know for sure. So God allows fire. He allows it. But Satan and God have very different purposes for this fire. Satan wants to pulverize Job, and God wants to use the fire that he allows to burn away the useless stuff out of Job's life so that he shines even brighter and that he's even more useful. Very different purposes. But here's the other side of the coin. It's not just that we're looking for an answer to the the conflict, if you will, between God and Satan, to the question Job doesn't know. Job is so blessed as are many of us in this room. Job doesn't know whether or not he will serve God with or without the blessings. And he almost, Job comes right up to the point of cursing God, giving up, turning tail, walking away, dropping the shield and saying, I'm out. The the harm, the alarm almost, almost gets to him. And so what Job learns about himself is probably very similar to what you and I learn. Is, is, which one is he? Is he a hireling or is he a servant? Yes. <laughs> He's both. And I think that's exactly what Paul was pointing to in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, when he says this, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive 
to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul says, listen, downtown, deep in my heart, in the inner man, I want to be a servant. But out in the suburbs of my heart, all this other stuff is out there. This, there's, there's this other law in my members. And out in the suburbs, there are things like pride and things like greed. There are things like selfishness. There are things like image and all these other things that war against each other in me, around me. I think about Job in the Old Testament. I think about Simon Peter in the New Testament. At the worst of the worst moment in Simon Peter's life, you think about the lowest point that we see him. And he knew it was coming. Jesus told him, right? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. You know it's important when Jesus says something once. When Jesus says something twice, right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. He says, Simon, listen, pay attention, man, because there's this moment coming where the enemy is after you. And you know, um, the sifting, uh, when you go to Texas Roadhouse or, uh, or Logan's, um, you get the peanuts, right? And you uh, do this to the peanuts. The stuff that comes off of the peanuts, that's chaff. You get to throw it on the floor there, right? You don't even have to worry about vacuuming it up. You just throw it down there. That's what Jesus says to Simon in these verses, he says, listen, what, what the enemy wants to do, he wants to sift you. When you sifted wheat, all you could see is the chaff that was left. The good fruit falls out, falls out the bottom. Simon, Simon, behold Satan. He would sift you. He would turn your life into something that is nothing but useless stuff. That that's what everybody would see about you. That's what everybody would know about you. And Simon is offended that Jesus would even think that existed in him. He's like, no. And yet, on the night of the crucifixion, he's offered the opportunity once, twice, and on the third time when Simon Peter denies Jesus and the rooster crows. I believe it's in Luke's gospel that it says that Simon, or that Simon Peter's eyes and Jesus' eyes lock across the courtyard, and they see each other. How many times I have wondered what is in that look? Because it's at that moment Peter goes out, cries bitterly. I think Peter thinks he's done um, as a disciple. And he knows it's coming. It's all in there. But I would say this. So first of all, fire is inevitable. But the second thing I would say is that fire this is going to sound odd, but fire is admirable. And what I mean by admirable is um, when two armies are fighting each other, um, soldiers 20, uh, 20 miles off the, off the front, they don't get bullets, right? Why are you going to fire it? Who gets the bullets? It's the people who are on the front lines. And how often people have said to me, man, I don't get it. Like, you told, me to, you told me to take this step of generosity to give. And I, I, I did it, and my car broke down. What's, what, what gives with that? You told me that I needed to serve. And as soon as, I, as soon as I take this step and start to serve, all of a sudden I get sick. And you told me, and yeah, the people on the front lines, 
are the ones who get the bullets. And those who serve the most and those who invest the most often are also attacked the most. And I'd be willing to bet that we could go table to table to table to table. And we could give testimony to how that is reality. But we have to understand kind of what we gave some context to this morning and we were doing Q&A, that we are, we're like, we're like kids, we're like children, and children don't understand. If you get, um, let's say you get a promotion, um, and it's going to be better for your family in every way. It's better economically, it's going to be better, it moves you closer to family, it's better relationally, it's going to be better spiritually, it's better in every way, but you got a five-year-old, and your five-year-old's got this really great friend, right? And you know that, man, it's going to hurt your five-year-old's feelings when you have to pull up roots and move to Denver or wherever, wherever that is. No parent worth their salt, if they believe that that's the best thing financially, relationally, and spiritually for your family, no parent worth their salt is going to back down from their five-year-old having to leave one of their friends. Now, you're not going to enjoy that, right? You're not going to enjoy telling them, hey, we're going to move, and you know it's going to be difficult, but you also know there's going to be a whole lot of other friends for the rest of their lives. And the reality is, by the time they're 25, they're probably not even going to remember this one friend that they left here. Why is that? Because you've been five before, right? Because you're the parent and they're the child. And parents know things that children don't know. And when it comes to us and God, he is our heavenly father. And he knows things we don't know. We've never been him, but he has been us. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, right? Became one of us, took on the form and fashion of a man. He knows what it's like to be us. We don't know what it's like to be him. And that's where we take up the shield of faith, right? We hold it up in faith, knowing that we don't know, understanding that we're not, we're not capable of understanding because he's God and we're not. It has wisely been said that the biggest difference between us and God is that God doesn't think he's us, right? And too often we get caught playing his part, playing his role. So fire is inevitable, fire um, is admirable, and then the last one, um, I'll just say uh, fire is beneficial. And it's beneficial in this way, that God, if we allow and if we work alongside of him, God will use fire not only to change us, but to change others through us. Um, It was uh, October the 16th, October 16th, 1555, in, uh, in Oxford, England, on Broad Street, two men were burned at the stake. Um, Queen Mary uh, had taken power, and this is Bloody Mary, Mary I, and um, widespread persecution swept the country. Two men, Hugh Latimer and uh, Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake for, um, for their adherence to their Protestant convictions and their desire to evangelize uh, in England and, uh, and to make disciples. And when they lit the flames on the fire there on Broad Street, it was widely reported that as the flames were coming up, that Latimer says to uh, Ridley, and I'll read 
Uh, I'll read the quote to you just to get it right. He says this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle in England that I trust will never be put out. So six months later, the Archbishop of Canterbury is a guy named Thomas Cranmer, and Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer. For the first time in world history, people who were English-speaking had prayers translated into the English language that they could read and then pray back to God by Cranmer. Queen Mary finds out about it. She threatens um, she threatens Thomas Cranmer, threatens his life, and he recants his Protestant views, his Christian views. He recants. Within 48 hours, he felt guilty for it. And so he took back his recantment. He was thrown in jail. Queen Mary thought it's just a matter of time, right? He'll sign, and get, he'll sign again. He had signed the confession once. He'll sign his confession again. But the longer he sat in prison, the more resolute he became that he wouldn't sign again. And so the next year, it was March 21st, um, 1516, excuse me, 1556, Cranmer was to be burned at the stake on Oxford in the exact same spot that Latimer and Ridley were burned. And so they bring Cranmer out, and they bring him by the fire. Not yet in, but they were just starting. They bring him by the fire, and he takes his right arm, and he throws it in the fire, and he says, the hand that recanted, was the hand that recanted my faith should be burned first. And Cranmer was burned in the exact same spot at the stake for the sake of your faith and my faith, so that you and I, so that our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandcestors could pray in their own language. At that time, the Book of Common Prayer became the most widely published English book in the next, um, in the next century. So what does that mean for all of us? I would say this to you. Be of good cheer. Play the man, play the woman. For these um, fiery trials that you currently experience are going to light a flame in your home, in your place of business, in your neighborhood, um, on your sports teams that you coach, that will not soon be put out. Let's pray together. God, we thank you um, for the shield of faith. We thank you, God, for the difficult uh, moments. For the moments, God, that we have to understand now that we're not going to understand. Um, because you're going to use them in incredible ways. You promised it. And because you promised it, we're going to arm ourselves with this, with this promise that you've given us. Lord, for the folks who are in the room uh, tonight, who are facing maybe not a crisis, but the crisis of their lives. Maybe there are some people around them that know about it. 
Maybe some people around them here in this room. Maybe some people around them at their homes. Maybe there are people in this room, God, that are facing the crisis and no one knows about it, but you do. Lord, I pray for them a strong shield of faith. And God, I pray that you'll give us eyes to see how you are turning us into gold. It's in your name we pray. Amen.